Hi, I'm Adam Grant, and you may know me from the podcast Work Life. As an organizational psychologist, I know that sometimes the best way to solve a problem is to question the way we've always done it. On my new show with the TED Audio Collective, Rethinking, I talk to some of today's greatest minds about how they see the world, from scientists to artists, people from Brene Brown to Lin-Manuel Miranda to Mark Cuban, and explore the assumptions they challenge and the mindsets that fuel their success. Find Rethinking wherever you listen. If you take somebody who's cripplingly insecure and narcissistic, but also like deeply empathetic, and you give them acclaim and you give them social power and you give them funds, that is a recipe for fucking disaster. From the TED Audio Collective, this is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 18 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, King Princess talks about their young career and the perils of early success in the music business. What are my values? What do I look for in people? Is it people who just validate me all the time or is it people who challenge me? I hate it when dudes try to chase me But I love it when you try to save me Cause I'm just a lady You rarely see it coming, but when a star is born, you just know it. In 2018, Michaela Mulaney Strauss, now more popularly known as King Princess, came out with their debut single, and the world, including Harry Styles and Kourtney Kardashian, took notice. A chart-topping album followed, and now, despite a two-year pandemic that shut down the live music business, King Princess has cemented their reputation as one of the most original and charismatic musicians working today. They're here to talk about their music, their career, and everything in between. King Princess, welcome to Design Matters. Thank you. Hi. Hi. So I understand you're a fan of The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills and The Real Housewives of New York. Do you And have... The Real Housewives of Salt Lake City. Ah, okay. Do you have a do you have a <laughs> preference? <laughs> well, right now, I mean, there's a lot of rumors speculating, but they're redoing the revamping the cast of New York and Beverly Hills is on hiatus as well. So Salt Lake City is where I'm focusing in on. And how do you feel about Jenna Lyons joining the crew of the New York cohort? I think that's a really interesting choice. It's always funny to me when, like, people who have, you know, like, bolsterous careers join the show because it's like you're going to fight with a bunch of women now, (laughs) which is amazing for me. I mean, I would love to see Jenna Lyons fight with women, but... I think in the past it's supposed to be like the upper echelon of like a society that like no one gives a fuck about kind of like from my generation's perspective. But because there's such characters like I love the most flawed housewives. I like the ones that like cause chaos. Yeah. You know, I have to be honest. I've never, ever watched an episode of any of them. I might now that Jenna's joined and I'm a big fan and she's been on this show, but my wife is crazy about them, like ridiculous and is always sneaking off to watch them. But I just can't bring myself to um, enjoy it as much as people seem to be able to. It's so useless for the brain. (laughs) 
It doesn't encourage brain growth in any way. It's literally watching middle-aged women have poor discourse, just terrible communication skills. But the, the characters, the comedy, there couldn't be a better scripted show. <laughs> that's what my you know wife what I mean? says. Yeah. I'll never so, stop watching. Okay. Well, I think that's a that's a as as good a affirmation as we could get. <laughs> We're gonna go into like a podcast about art, and I'm like right. the housewives. <laughs> well, they have one called Every Outfit on Sex in the City, so we could talk about every character on the Real Housewives. I, I listened to that podcast. It's a good one, right? I love Sex in the City. So yeah, me too. So let's talk about you a bit. You were raised okay. in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. I was born in Borough Park, Brooklyn. By the way. Initially, your parents were in a metal band. Your dad played drums and your mother sang. What was the name of the band? I think they were in several bands, but the one that I remember the name of is Warthog. Interesting. Where did that come from? What was that about? I don't know. What That's just, I guess, the genius of my parents' brains. <laughs> Though they ended up divorcing, your dad stayed in the music business and founded the studio Mission Sound and worked as an engineer from everyone from Arctic Monkeys to Jack Antonoff to Animal Collective. Originally, the studio was in the basement of your childhood home, correct? Mm-hmm, the house I still live in. And you'd go down there and just tinker? No, at that point, I was too young. This was from when I was born to when I was three. But I do distinctly remember, like, you know, my dad has a lot of 60s microphones and microphone cases were just so beautiful and they had latches. And I remember in my room in that house playing with microphones, not on, just thinking they were interesting, thinking they were cool looking. But yeah, no, I didn't really get into actually fucking around in the studio until I he moved into his second studio space and that's when I started to really because I we we like slept in there initially when my parents got divorced we didn't really have an apartment so it was like we were in the studio is it true you wrote your first song called Jackie the dog when you were five that is my yeah that is my first song any chance you remember any of the lyrics I don't it was kind of a blues number a bit of a classic one, four, five. Uh, my dad would just, I mean, he thought it was so entertaining to just like p- put me on a microphone and just like play like a little ditty and just like have me sing. Like he thought it was so funny. He thought I had really good timing. So, <laughs> well, didn't he also have you do redo backup vocals for musicians who provided backups that he didn't like? Yeah. I mean, like I would do that sometimes. I was kind of like a fun party trick, you know, like, oh, she can really sing. <laughs> you know, I was like, Yeah, I did that. I sang some background vocals for people. Kind of just wanted to participate wherever I was welcome. I'd like bring my homework in there and like not do it and just sit and watch everybody. Because it was so interesting to me. Oh, my God. I can't imagine. It seems like just paradise. As you were growing up, I read that you liked Madonna and Cher, Lauryn Hill, and femme rock and roll boys like Prince and David Bowie and Robert Plant from Led Zeppelin and Roger Daltrey from The Who, who you once referred to as femme motherfuckers, which I kind of loved. They um, are. What What did you like most about them? I think I related to them gender-wise. Like, I felt like maybe I I didn't fit in, in any traditional 
idea of femininity and that these like men were the closest thing I had to like what I felt like I was, which was just like a gender amorphous femme, but not femme person. There wasn't a wealth of um, queer representation like there is now. Or at least queer representation that I related to. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I, it's so interesting that masculinity is allowed to be feminine, but not the other way around without a lot of controversy. Well, back in the day, I mean, I feel like it was like the hot guys dressed in ladies' clothes. Oh, yeah. I mean, look at the lead singer from Aerosmith, who I think looks like an old lesbian at this point. Oh, my God. Steven Tyler, right? So I saw Steven Tyler one time. I was walking home really drunk in high school from my friend's house. I was walking to the train and I passed by him and he's like got his scarves. Right. And he's like in like a he's with his like entourage. And I walked by him and I was like, oh, my God. And I turned around and him and I at the same time threw up a peace sign. (gasps) Wow. It was pretty cool. Do you it was, think he recognized was, you? He couldn't have because I wasn't. It was when I was 15. Oh, okay. <laughs> There's no chance. I mean, it was literally, he was just, we both just had the same thought. Like we saw each other and we're like, oh, like you see me. It's like, oh, I see you. And then it was like, <laughs> peace. <laughs> I read that your ultimate idol is Jack White. And when your mother yeah. first brought you a poster of Jack and Meg wearing suits entirely made of buttons. You looked at it and decided that that's what you wanted. Was it the music, the aesthetic, or being the centerpiece of a poster? I think it was all three. I think it was the the music first because I loved the White Stripes growing up. Like when I was in middle school, when I was like becoming a teenager, the music that was pop music just like wasn't singing to me. And... Jack White and the White Stripes were just this centerpiece of my childhood where I I could just be like, these people are making rock and roll. But yeah, no, that poster came home and I saw the buttons and I was like, I need to be this. I need a suit of buttons and (laughs) a suit of buttons and a poster. Your mother worked in clothing throughout your childhood, and you'd go to trade shows and enjoy the performative nature of it and experimenting with who you could be. And I read that you said that you realized that clothing and makeup were armor. And I was wondering if you felt like that was a good thing or a bad thing. I think it's a really powerful thing that can be wielded to make incredible art and to promote self-expression especially with young people like for a really long time I feel like clothes were used to promote conformity and makeup was used to mask your face to be traditionally feminine and again conform to society and now it's like I, I just think that there's so much fun to be had with those things you know when you look at drag culture, when you look at ballroom culture, when you look at just 80s and 90s in New York, it's like, look at the way people were using clothes and makeup, especially people who didn't have the money for quote unquote designer. It was about making things, making creations, whether it was makeup or clothing and using them as costume. Whereas I think sometimes people think costume is to become someone else. I think that costume can be used to figure out parts of yourself you didn't know. 
for me, like the thought of going into a Sephora as a kid was like horrifying. Like I just had no idea how to where to start. That was not my zhuzh. I didn't understand makeup. And now it's like I do my makeup every night before a show and it's become this thing that is it's a ritual and it makes me feel powerful and I experiment and I try new things. And I've had people like my makeup artist, Sarah, who's lovely enough to teach me. There's a great power in 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 clothing and in, and in makeup. And I think that the more that we see people play with it, the more the needle turns away from these informative, outdated uses. I read about, or no, actually I heard about it on your origin story that you did with Audible, where somebody gave you a, a Barbie head and it made you cry. It was so funny. I was at, I was at Thanksgiving at my girlfriend's family's house and they pulled out this like, massive tub of Barbies that Quinn and her mother like collected and they had like really rare ones like now I'm like obsessed (laughs) when I have kids like I'm gonna like I want Barbies because it's like so sick but when I was a kid it just felt like somebody was telling me like you should play with this it would just felt hurtful because I don't know if I had the language I didn't have the language to be like that doesn't feel right that's not what that's not really my zhuzh that's not my thing But I'm so comfortable with myself now that it's like, I would love a tub of Barbies. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, Oh, yeah, absolutely. When I was growing up, we didn't have a lot of money and I wanted Barbies more than anything. And when I got older, I started to recreate the few that I had. I I re-got them because I wanted to sort of feel what it felt like to have them and sort of to own them. And then when my brother had a daughter, she was into Barbies. And so I like went crazy. I bought her like a million Barbies. We have a tub of Barbies sitting in his basement. I can send you. (laughs) Thank you. Isn't it funny? Like all this shit that you like begged your parents for as a kid for Christmas. I felt this too. Like... When you become an adult, it's so easy to buy those things. Yeah. You know, I have a fucking basketball hoop now. Right. Yeah. Like, I just, you know, I just thought about like what I wanted as a kid. And it's funny, like calling my business manager and being like, hey, Dawn, is it okay if I get like a basketball hoop or like an Xbox? And she's like, yeah. No, I totally get it. It's something about filling up a hole that was sort of deeply cratered at a very early age for, you know, some desire. You were offered a record deal when you were 11 years old. Virgin Records wanted you to be the voice of... uh, Yeah, this is... It wasn't a record deal. Okay. I was asked to be the voice of something. Like, I was... Emily the Strange, right? Right. They were contracting me to play a character, and I was totally down for it because I was like, oh, this sounds fun, and it's like, you know, something to do after school and something I care about, and it never really came into fruition, but it was a really important experience for me because it was the first time I had met with someone and had to, like, express myself and be like, this is me. And it happened to be when I was 11, and that was really helpful, you know. Luckily, I had practice. I was used to talking to older people because of the studio. But yeah, so there's, like, always two things that come up. Like, somehow my dad, the idea of him being a studio owner is, like, turned into him being some mega powerful 
fucking music industry CEO, which is not fucking true. I don't know. Like, you need to Google what a studio owner is. Like, that shit. Like, it is a begrudging job. Like, it is. You're basically, and this is no shade to my dad. I love my dad. But he would admit it's like. There's very little power and control that comes from the actual recording of the music. You have no affiliation or connection to the people, to the big business owners who are making executive decisions on people's music. You are engineering music. So when people say on the internet or whatever that I've had some sort of like, I had some shoe in, it's like, no, I had privilege because I learned a lot about the studio and about being a recording artist because I had the luxury of living in a studio. I didn't have the luxury of having a father who like ran fucking Columbia or ran, you know what I mean? Yeah. Or ran capital. Like my dad is, is a small business owner. Well, it's interesting because I had seen so many different sort of stories about it and was wondering how you being offered the opportunity to vocalize Emily the Strange turned into a record deal. So I'm glad that we can clarify that. No, there was um, a lady who had come into the studio who A&R'd, and she probably worked at Virgin at one point. And so acts would come in, and occasionally their A&Rs would come in, or somebody from their label would come in to check on how the record's doing or whatever. And me, being the ballsy kid I was, would be like, hi, to these people. But the occurrence that somebody would come in who had any pull in the industry was not often. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you went to high school at Avenues, the world school in Manhattan. It's around the block from where I live. I pass out all the time. And I understand you were cast in a production of Oklahoma, but were asked to leave for being too rowdy. So that was before high school. Okay. I did a kind of, I wouldn't say it was Christian, but there was undertones. Hmm. Camp. I was I went upstate every summer. I didn't really know anybody or have any friends. And I, you know, my aunt, my uncle and my mother put me in this camp and I got a little aggressive (laughs) with a girl who happened to be the daughter of the owner of this camp. So that was not, you know, a slam dunk for me. (laughs) That's a strange play. I just recently saw one of the remakes of it in Manhattan on, it was off-Broadway. No, it was was Broadway because one of the women won the Tony for her role. Very strange play. It's hard to believe that it's still being made. So that was before high school, but then I, you know, I did a lot of theater in high school. My favorite teachers and my best teachers were English teachers that doubled as drama teachers. I was really lucky to have like a couple of teachers in high school who just like I'm still in touch with who are just like really saw something in me and really supported me emotionally and through art in school. Although I wouldn't say that that was like an art school. They just had these like two guys Jordan Mahome and Drew Cortese, who were just like the best. So, yeah, I happened to do theater with them, too. Didn't you put on your own production of Cabaret as your senior thesis project? That was my senior project. Me and my best friend, Cicely, were kind of like manning the theater program. So Cicely and I were like, you know what? Like, let's try to do something, try to build a program that then can be carried on 
by like future students. And this makes me sound like I cared about like school and was very involved in school. I wasn't. This was the one thing that I was like, everyone needs theater. It's really helpful. It it brings people together. It definitely like provides a space for the gay kids. (laughs) So, and the queer kids. So I was like, we should do this. So we, we ended up putting on this production and we did everything ourselves. I originally was like the co-director and the musical director but then I just got moved to musical director because again I was a little bit too like intense to be the director (laughs) see I was envisioning you being the MC you know the sort of Joel Gray Alan Cummings part so ironic I casted myself as Sally Bowles and you could do you could have done either but I think it would have been really interesting for you to do the MC role I don't think I was in my gender enough at that point to play the MC. Now I feel like I could, but I, at the time I was like, oh, I'm the director. I'm literally casting myself as the lead. And Cicely played the prostitute who lives in the same building. <laughs> she was amazing. It was like, <laughs> more sailors. <laughs> well, after writing Jackie the dog, you continued writing and recording, but you said, quote unquote, that it wasn't until you were in high school and started being fully gay and eating pussy that you wrote your first proper song and had something to say. Were they love songs, sex songs? I just I just always I baffle myself with my poetry in in <laughs> In well, it's interviews. Very, very likely the first time I've actually <laughs> said the word pussy on Design Matters in 18 years of doing the show. But, you know, it's not like I say it off air. I mean, it's not like I don't say it off air. So, Well, it's just you know. so funny. Like, my mom always jokes. It's like, she'll, like, listen. Like, I don't usually listen to stuff that I talk in, and she does. And I'll be like, oh, how'd I do? And she's like, you said a couple insightful things. <laughs> like... <laughs> Okay, thanks. <laughs> At least she's honest. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, when I got, I mean, I don't know, everybody has those big feelings when you get to that age, you know, whether you're straight or gay, you start to, like, explore yourself and relationships and stuff, and I feel like that's when the big feelings come about, when it's like you're, like, sitting in your room crying and, like, listening to Oasis, and you're like, <laughs> you know what I really, I was, that's what I was doing. <laughs> like, yep, yeah. Um, but I was falling in love with everyone and was needing a place to put feelings. And I always wrote music, but now it felt like it wasn't about just writing. It felt like it was about therapy. It felt like it was about doing something with all this kind of like angst and and emotion that I didn't know where to put. And that's when I started to like really write and care about what I was writing. You talked about how your parents wanted you to make the most of your bougie private school education by applying and attending college for at least a year. What made you decide to move to L.A. and attend USC Thornton School of Music? So because Avenues was brand new, they weren't like receiving test scores, which was really great because I don't take tests well. So I remember I brought in a CD and I was like, here's my music. And then they gave me a scholarship. So I knew at that point getting into like a school would have to be like through music. I just didn't have the scores or like the grades because I was like smoking cigarettes in the bathroom. Like I just didn't like, you know what I mean? Like I just, I just wanted to smoke weed, you know, and make music. There were things I loved about school, but there was things I kind of realized 
when you pursue an academic education, it has to be rounded. And I just like didn't have the attention span for the shit I didn't want to do. So applying to college, I was like, I really want to have this experience. Like I want to go to college, but like I just can't sustain like four years at like a liberal arts school. I'm just going to be in like so much debt. You know, I was just like, I don't know. I got to be crafty about this. Like I got to like be in LA. I got to do my, I got to get into music school. I got to do my one year and then I got to get the fuck out of there. That was like my, in my head, like made perfect sense. And somehow like by the fucking skin of my pussy, I got into USC and I went to Thornton for a year and knowing that like I was there to work in LA, but I got a lot of great things out of it. Like I, you know, really like honed my performance craft and I met my band. Um, I partied a lot. Wrote a lot of great songs. I wrote a lot of great songs during that year. And and then I kind of dipped out and handled what I loaned out. <laughs> with my <laughs> And I started my, my career. because. But I don't mean to shit on them, but like what I didn't love and what, you know, I hope that like some kid is like listening to on this podcast and like can get from this is like there are schools that are encouraging of kids leaving college to pursue careers and there are schools that aren't and USC in my mind and for me in my specific experience was not supportive of me leaving really what did they do what did they say they just were like, why can't you do both? And I was like, because I can't, A, I can't afford both. And B, because I have to go do this. Like, this is what I'm meant to do. And I'm a worker. I can't talk about working for four years and then go and work after the four years. I need to work now. Like, I'm being summoned by something to go and go on tour. And if that's going to conflict with this school schedule, like, I, I will not sacrifice that for essentially like a program that says after four years you're equipped to join the music industry like I feel like I'm equipped now (laughs) well other other folks thought that too I mean February of 2017 you signed with Mark Ronson's Zelig Recordings which is an imprint of Columbia and you were his very first artist how did you meet Mark and what gave you the sense that you were ready to sign a recording contract at that point so my music was on a SoundCloud link that my managers were kind of just like sending around you know, like a private SoundCloud link. There really wasn't like a grand master plan. It was like, let's get these songs. Me and my managers were like, let's get these songs together. Let's send it and see what the response is. Kind of knowing in the back of our minds that they're good. That was a big part of it was that we we believed in it, in that EP. So started to send it around. I guess it got sent to sent to sent to sent to sent to sent to finally it gets sent to Harley, who is part of Zelig and Harley was building this label with Mark and Harley played it for Mark. I got a call that he wanted to, I was at my girlfriend at the time's house and I got a call from Adam and Andrew and they said, are you ready for this? You better sit down. And I was like, what? I thought something bad was gonna. (laughs) And they were like, you got a meeting with Mark Ronson. And so I was like, Oh, I was like, for what? And he's like, they're like, he wants to sign you. And I was like, oh. So I went and had dinner with him. That was it. (laughs) Is it true you call him daddy? I do call him daddy. I love that. He's papa. 
he, I came across this quote, something that he said about you. I wanted to read it. This is what he said. When I met Alicia Keys for the first time, she was 18, coming from school to my tiny studio on 54th Street. She sat down and had this confidence without being cocky. Same thing with Lady Gaga. I think it's a New York energy, streetwise, self-aware, no need to be too showy, but you kind of know you're the real deal. I got that from Michaela. I could tell from that conversation, this person is going to do something really great. Aww. I thought that was wonderful. In February of 2018, you released your first single. I fell madly in love with you when I saw it. The video titled 1950, which was one of those songs that seemed to capture the imagination of the whole world at once. The first week after its release, 1950 reached a million streams. After that, the pace increased by almost a million streams a day. Harry Styles tweeted the lyrics. Kourtney Kardashian loved it on Instagram. Taylor Swift professed her love on, on Entertainment Weekly. Did the response surprise you? Part of me was like, I know this song is really special. And part of me just couldn't believe what was happening. You know, it was the thing I always wanted. And then I got it on the first song, which is like a blessing and a curse. Because I feel like then it was like a race of catch up where you're like, what now? (laughs) Like, what am I supposed to make an album? I've never made an album. You know what I mean? Like, but at the same time, like, you know, it feels so good to be validated by people in the industry, especially people who are who are titans. You know, I just got to do a bunch of really cool shit. Like, I just got to, like, go and play. Sh- then I was playing shows and then I was doing magazines covers. And then I was or at first it wasn't covers. First, it was just I was in magazines. I was like, oh, my God, I love my photo taken. This is fucking great. Then I was going to fucking different countries I had never been to. And then I was being treated differently. And as a kid who like didn't really connect with people, my own age especially, and was very lonely, it was like sensory overload. Not only are people talking to me, they're saying nice things. (laughs) Mm. The song is a nod to Patricia Highsmith's novel, groundbreaking novel, 1952 lesbian love story, The Price of Salt, which was also the basis of the movie Carol. And I read that the melody came to you in your dorm room shower and took just 20 minutes to write. I was showering in my dorm and I ran out of the shower ass naked. I was humming it. My roommate was sitting on my bed and I was like, give me your phone. And I sang it into the phone. A few months later, you released your first EP, Make My Bed. And I understand another song on the EP, Talia, you also wrote in your dorm's practice room 20 minutes before class. Yeah. But you've said that Pussy is God, your next single after the EP, was a nightmare to write. What makes something easy to write versus arduous? Well, like Talia was written in like an entire moment of just like, (laughs) like just sobbing. It almost just like poured out. Whereas like Pussy is God, I mean, it's like lyrically is a is not a sad song. And when you're not writing from a place of like absolute overtaking emotion, you actually have to think. Like, I think there's something that happens creatively when you're when your brain kind of shuts off from like the world and you're just writing for you versus when you're writing something in a studio like, I came in with the verse of Pussy is God. I was like, what if the song started with... I was like, I was also kind of embarrassed. I was like, I was like, what do you think about this? Like, what if the song starts with your pussy is God and I love it? 
<laughs> and <laughs> my friend Nick Long was like, that's amazing. And I was like, really? And then we wrote it and we couldn't get the chorus right. And it didn't, didn't feel like it was clicking. I was in London and Mark was like, what if you sampled Uchi Wally? And I, he was like, it's a great, it would be great. It's like a song about taking dick. Like, it'd be so amazing to like flip it. And that's Nas and the Bravehearts. Yes. 2001 hit. <laughs> yes. So I decided to do that. <laughs> I chopped it up on Ableton in front of him, just on my laptop speakers. I read that longing is key to your creative process. In what way? I think that at least for my first two projects, the EP and Cheap Queen, that idea of like this unrequited love, like that's all I knew. Like in my life, and you as a queer person probably understand when you're young and you know who you are, or if you're not young and, you know, or figuring out who you are, it can be devastating to put yourself out there in a different way from straight people because you're dealing with that second level of like, well, is that person gay? Are they willing to be gay with me? Is this feeling that I'm having, is it too big? Is it too crazy? Is it too weird? Is it going to off-put someone? And then, of course, there's the dreaded, like, being in love with someone who isn't interested in you. And that I think it's even more devastating when they're not interested in you because they're not gay. Mm. But they're still toying with you because that's how these bitches roll. <laughs> like, <laughs> so, <clears throat> yeah, no, I definitely was, like, very much... You know, I, I say something to my girlfriend a lot. I was talking to her. She's always like, why do you watch these like fucking lesbian period pieces where everyone dies at the end or gets converted or goes back with their man? Like it's fucking torture porn. Like, why are you watching this? Like, she's like, I just don't understand. And I said, well, it's what we're seasoned to be horny for. Mm -hmm. Like, I think as queer people, because of the media and because that's how our stories back in the day were sanctioned by the government to be. And now because it's a generational trauma and it's inherited, we still continue to perpetuate that cycle of unhappiness and, and devastation and sadness. And I think it's instilled in us as queer people to expect something bad to happen. I think I toil with that and I also laugh about it. Why do you laugh? Because it's fucking hilarious that, like, I just can't stop. Oh, well, maybe it's also sort of knowing that this outcome is different now at, at this point for you, at least. It is, but it's like, but it isn't in the media still. It's like, yeah. you can have a, a hundred shitty gay rom-coms, but if you want, in, like, all the Oscar gay movies are sad. That's true. Yep. Like, look at the last fucking year. It's like fucking Portrait of a Lady on Fire. That sad one with the Hasidic Jewish woman. <laughs> like, right. Disobedience? Is that what it's disobedience. called? Disobedience. Yeah. It's called oh, disobedience. Yeah. Right. Exactly. The one with Kate Winslet where she, Saoirse Ronan sits on Kate Winslet's face. Yep. And she's the geologist. Mm -hmm. I don't remember the name of that, but that was terrifying. I don't remember that, the name either, but I remember the face sitting. Mm, well, and I loved yeah. it. <laughs> it hasn't changed. We haven't figured out how to really, like, break this cycle of inherited trauma. No, even Jenny Schechter died on the L word. So, you know, that wasn't that long ago. It's a very interesting queer theory that should be explored more. Why we love sadness. Maybe it's just the heartbreak that we relate to. 
We relate to it for sure, but I think it has to also somehow stem from A, reality, and B, what the government allowed to happen to mm-hmm. queer people yeah. in and media. what we feel like we deserve. Because it's, specific, like it's yeah. specific to media, but I also think that, you know, like I have so many conversations with with my friends about like how we take those teachings from the media and we then put them into our life. Mm-hmm. We go after people who don't like us. We go for unattainable situations. It's, it is changing, but I think that like I'm still wounded from the art. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, Make My Bed was met with universal acclaim, but you've said that after your early success, you got lost in the sauce for a couple of years. What does that mean? I don't, it, was, it doesn't sound like you mean lost in the, like, alcohol as sauce, just sauce of... Well, drugs, oh, for sure. Dr- oh, okay. But also just like, I mean, if you're like, if you take somebody who's cripplingly insecure and narcissistic, but also like, deeply empathetic and you give them a claim and you give them social power and you give them funds that is a recipe for fucking disaster it is have is a age-old fucking tale of what happens when young people get that it's really hard to come back from it it's like addictive and then other things become addictive and then you're in this cycle of like i don't know that sounds so dark but it's I think it's true. It's like you look at like all these incredible artists who like shit happens and they, you know, they lose it. I think that that is a direct response to like celebrity. I definitely felt that way. Like I'm not Beyonce. I'm a very minor member of this artistic community in the grand scheme of things. And yet I felt completely crippled by success for a while and confused but, I do, you know, it's a lot of therapy and a lot of, like, really assessing relationships in my life and being like, who is going to keep me grounded? Who is going to call me out? What are my values? What do I look for in people? Is it people who just validate me all the time or is it people who challenge me? It's harder to have people who challenge you, but it also makes you a better person. I had to get back to what was important, which was making music chilling with my friends, and having fun. What did you learn about yourself in that experience? That I have an extremely addictive personality and that it works really well for making music, but it's also, like, really easy to be addicted to everything, be addicted to drugs, be addicted to the high highs of the industry. Like, I was talking to a girl who opened for me on tour named M, and I was like, you know, it's like you get on stage, and being on stage is like, fucking doing a line of blow it's like you know it's like you feel like you're on the on top of the world and then you get off stage and you're back into the mundane and so it's like peaks and valleys and i think that the key of this career from what i've experienced is there'll always be the peaks and there'll always be the valleys but it's trying to make the valleys less deep and i think that what how to do that at least what i've learned is that you have to find beauty in the mundane like you have to find things that make you happy that have nothing to do that that are small that have nothing to do with your career like skincare like <laughs> like going and playing a sport going to dinner with your friends watching movies playing video games whatever that thing is for you that you can be excited for after that high that may not be as much of a high it's still 
going to make that valley less deep. You've said this about your current state of mind. The only antagonist around me right now is me. It's really hard to consider that not liking yourself is a form of heartbreak. And that's what I've been dealing with. You can be heartbroken for yourself, not liking yourself. Are you still feeling heartbroken for yourself? I think the album and touring the album really helped. Like, Hold On Baby, I think is the best body of work I've ever made, like just artistically. And it's the most thought out and it's the most finished thought. It's one thing to write it. I think you deal with a lot of shit by putting it down on paper, but it's a whole other thing to play it every night and to say those words and to watch people empathize and feel those things back. And then there's this osmosis where you're like on stage and people are feeling things and you're having deep feelings and you're healing with each other. Do you go into different states of mind when performing songs from your EP or Cheap Queen and now Hold On Baby? What's it like to go sort of back and forth in those, from those time frames? It's almost like the thing in Harry Potter where Dumbledore goes like this with the wand and pulls out the memory and puts it, <laughs> puts it yeah. in like the gorgeous sink. That's how I feel. I feel like I'm like taking a snapshot of what I felt in the past and I'm reliving it. And it's not as painful, but it is interesting and it's important to access those emotions. What I was feeling when I wrote Talia, what I was feeling when I wrote 1950, what I was feeling when I wrote Cheap Queen, when I wrote Prophet, when I wrote. So like I I find new ways to fall in love with those songs when I perform them. And then what's really amazing is that there's these like songs I've never played live that like people request. So learning some of those songs for a live setting and playing them has been really fun and validating because it's like some of those songs like weren't even going to make it on the record like the label was like "Ah," and then some kids like back of a cab like I gotta hear that song in Vancouver and I'm like okay so but playing the new stuff is like so awesome it's just so helpful it's a completely new level of maturity for you as a musician from my perspective sort of discovering your music when you first came out loving Cheap Queen, and now really, really kind of admiring Hold On Baby for a whole other way of thinking about what you're capable of doing, which is wonderful to watch a musician grow and change and develop, especially when they're so young. You said that one of your goals for the album was that you could play every song acoustically and it would still be impactful. And I saw your Tiny Desk concert for NPR. And I think you absolutely accomplished that, especially with the song Cursed, which is actually my favorite tune on the album. Um, have you thought about doing an acoustic tour? I would love to. I mean, like, I like the more and more my band play together, because I, like, I have a band. Like, you know, it's, it's like King Princess is me, but King Princess is also a band. And King Princess doesn't function unless there's a band. Right. You know what I mean? So those people are... Sort of like St. Vincent. Yeah, those people are my artistic partners. Those people challenge me and make the music better every time we play anything. And what's great about having a band and a band that you love and the band that you trust and a band that, for the most part, remains the same. My core members have remained the same. Logan and Antoine. We've gotten better and better at like, oh, let's just do this without tracks tonight. Or let's do this without this. Or let's add this. Or like, what if there's percussion? Let's get DJ to come play percussion. Like, we are mutating as we tour. 
And I think that that's what makes a show exciting and keeps it vamped is that like you as a band are growing while you're on tour, you're responding to what people respond to. So I would do any form of performance at this point. Like I just want to be excited and I want to sound good. And I want my band and I to think of new ways to make this music special. I have two last questions for you today. The first is about Fiona Apple, who I know you've become good friends with. Is it true she refers to you as her son? Yeah, she calls me Miho. <laughs> Love that. You've said that her lyrics, So Be It, I'm Your Crowbar, from her song, I Know, is your favorite line ever written in music. You recorded a version of I Know with Fiona. You got a tattoo of a crowbar and also titled one of your most beautiful love songs on Hold On Baby, crowbar. What is it about that word that moves you the way it does? Well, first of all, I think animating inanimate objects in song, personifying them is so interesting. I think lyrically that's more powerful to me than just a straight up metaphor or a simile. To say that you are somebody's crowbar means that you are actively prying at them. And a crowbar is a helpful tool. Yeah. It's meant to open. So to say, so be it, I'm your crowbar, it's it's relinquishing control to this understanding that you are meant to service someone in, in an emotional way. I think that that song is the most powerful song I've ever, I, don't, I cannot name a song that affects me as much as that song to the point where like I can only listen to it on certain days. Mm. I don't, it's, that's all I can say. It's just lyrical excellence. Yeah. Yeah. My last question for you is this. Um, you follow one person on Spotify. Miley Cyrus. I don't Why? even know who runs that account. Oh, okay. I was thinking <laughs> that there was something really profound about it. You know what? That is so funny because I, like, so I have Spotify for artists, like, but it's, like, just so that my team can see analytics and stuff. But I just have no idea how that happened. <laughs> <laughs> okay, then. But I, lo- I love Miley. Like, like, <laughs> well, maybe she followed you. Your people saw that. You followed her back. <laughs> you know what? Like, I'm going to ask. I'm going to be like, guys, like, what's up with this? I love it. But what's up? Well, King Princess, thank you so much for making so much work that matters. And thank you for joining me today on Design Matters. Thank you so much for having me. You can find out more about King Princess at kingprincessmusic.com. This is our 18th year we've been podcasting Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Melman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters is produced for the TED Audio Collective by Curtis Fox Productions. The interviews are usually recorded at the Masters in Branding program at the School of Visual Arts in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Emily Weiland.